Let marriage be held in honor. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this word. This word is the word of God. And though in our minds and though in our culture, we see that there is much transgression and and much avoidance and much rejection of this, this word and this topic for our message. We pray that you will help us not to be confused, help us not to hear the clamoring voices, but just to hear what your word says, to be composed and to be fair to uh, objectively see what your word says on this subject, that we might understand it better ourselves, understand your purpose for us, your goodness for us, and also, Father, to be able to teach the people we encounter what the truth of your word is on this subject. This is our prayer, and we pray that you will be with us as we seek to understand and please you and glorify you with this word. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, it is indeed a a big subject, a major subject, because it is a common sin among many, many people. And in one way or another, all of us have committed the sins that are mentioned here in one way or another in this verse. In one way or another, we have all done so. Either in thought, in word, or in deed, we have committed this sin. Now, this sin of sexual immorality, if we, we may use a general term, Uh, The sin of sexual immorality, it is so common that this sin is a transgression of one person against another. It's a sin of one person against another. And especially here, since he's addressing the church, he is warning us among the church that there should not be any of this going on within the church because we are the body of Christ We are the family of God. Each one of us are brothers and sisters towards one another in Christ. And so this kind of sin should not be named among us. It should not exist among us at all. And in this way, we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves, or we will truly love the brethren, as it says in verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Therefore, we have to correctly understand this and practice it in the local church and in all the churches and teach this because when people transgress this, both within the church and outside of the church, within the visible church and outside the church, whoever claims to be a Christian or even not a Christian, they must understand that these are sins against God himself and especially against God. As it says in Psalm 51.4, when David sinned against himself, sinned against his wife, sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against Uriah. When he sinned like that, he sinned against all the people, yes, but ultimately and most significantly, he sinned against God. That's why he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. And this way, this is the way we must look at this sin. Now, let's delve into it and see what he is addressing. In verse 4, He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Your Bibles may also say, marriage is to be held in honor among all. In this way, he is also giving a commandment, an imperative, just like he did in verse 2, do not neglect. Verse 3, remember. Verse 5, let your character be free from the love of money. Verse 7, remember those who led you. Verse 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings so forth, he is giving imperatives or commandments for the church to practice. That's what he is doing also in verse 4. That is the context of this. No matter what your Bible, however it translates it, it ought to be considered an imperative or a commandment, an obligation, something we ought to do. This is the way we should look at it. This is, in other words, not a recommendation not a different view, not an opinion, not a different way to look at it, but this is the commandment of God to be this way. We should not, and I say this because if you read commentators, you will notice that there is an issue with the grammar here, and the issue with the grammar has caused some 
commentators to lessen the importance of it, to lessen the urgency of it, to lessen the imperative nature of it. Some in, among the commentators have that view, but we should not have that view because it's in the context of commandments, it's in the context of our obligations, it's in the context of growing in the Spirit, it's in this context. And as well, we will see that the rest of the Bible makes it plain and clear, these are commandments that we ought to obey. So this is an imperative or a commandment for us. Notice also, he says, marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage. Well, what is marriage? And why should it be held in honor among all? Marriage in the Bible is between a man and a woman. Marriage in the Bible is between a man and the woman. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man, and man is a generic term to include male and female, as he says in verse 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, which means this is the blessing God pronounced on Adam and Eve at the very beginning. It's quite clear here, God made male and female. So naturally or biologically, when we come out of the womb, we are either male or female. It's only those two. There are not dozens of sexes or dozens of genders as is being promoted today. There are only two, male and female. This is all. So marriage, if we're going to use the biblical worldview, marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not between two men or five men. It's not between two women or five women. And it's not between a man and a horse. And it's not between a woman and a tree. It's nothing like that. No other combinations exist. Now, you might think that those are incredulous, and why would I even illustrate that way? Actually, I'm using literal, uh, literal examples. If you check the news, if you check the news, there are plenty of news reports of people marrying uh, or, uh, horses and dolphins and, and uh, trees and things of that nature. They do that. I'm not making it up. It's literally happening in our world. People think that that's what marriage is, but that's not what marriage is. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Furthermore, furthermore, we have um, evidence that marriage is to be held in honor. It's to be held in honor. Evidence from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, teaches us to honor marriage. Here we have... Uh, on, we have to honor marriage. Why? Because of Genesis chapter 1. God is the one that blessed them. If God blessed them, then it's honorable to be married, correct? Notice also chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, on why marriage should be honored. Because God instituted it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis two eighteen. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So strike Adam marrying a horse or a dolphin or a donkey, or anything else, right? That's impossible, according to God himself. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her 
to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here God clearly creates a woman suitable for the man. The two of them are brought together. They're they're brought together by God himself. And it says in 24, For this cause, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This means that God is the one producing or instituting, making this the right and honorable, commendable practice um, in human society. What should we do? A man should marry a woman and leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, become one flesh, and have no shame in doing so, having no shame in joining with his wife. This is what God announced as honorable. There's another reason why we should honor marriage. And the reason is because God expects the husband and the wife to covenant together before God to be husband and wife until death. This is why it should be honorable. Notice in Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16. Proverbs chapter 2, 16. He speaks of the adulterous woman, also called the strange woman. Strange because she's not a domestic, she's not in the house, she's outside of the house, so she's a strange woman who should have nothing to do with the house in this way. So 2.16, to deliver you, his advice, his wisdom is to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. The covenant of her God. When a wife commits adultery, then she is forgetting, dishonoring, reneging on her promises and vows that she made when she became one with her husband. When she rejects it, denies it, breaks it, breaches that, then she is throwing away this covenant, this honorable thing that God instituted, and they said in the presence of God and other people, that they would be husband and wife until death. So when the breach of the covenant is happening, then marriage is being dishonored. When adultery happens, then there is a dishonoring and profaning of this covenant and this um, agreement and vow that they have made with each other. Malachi, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi will also address this and confront this sin. Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Verse 14. Malachi 2, 14. In this context, Malachi is confronting and rebuking the people, the men who were divorcing their own Hebrew wives or Jewish wives and marrying foreign wives who worshiped idols. They were divorcing their wives of their youth who were Jewish or Hebrew wives, they were divorcing them and then marrying pagan wives, foreign wives who worshiped idols. And then in verse 14, he says this, yet you say, after he confronts them some, he, they say, for what reason? And he, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit that no, that, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Well, God is the witness against the man and his wife of youth because the man was dealing treacherously. We are treacherous when we make a vow or a promise and we break it. Then we are treacherous. 
And this is what they did. She's the companion, wife of the youth, wife by covenant. They dishonored the covenant. If they dishonor the covenant, they are dishonoring God because they made the covenant in the sight of God, in the name of God, and before the people of God. And therefore, they would dishonor the marriage. And he says in 15, those who have the spirit and who are seeking a godly offspring, verse 15, they don't do that. Those who have the spirit, the remnant of the spirit, and seek a godly offspring, they don't do that. So he says to them, the transgressors, let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. You better not do that. If you claim to seek a godly offspring, you claim to have the Spirit, you better not behave that way. Verse 16, why? For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God hates divorce, and He hates, make the connection, he not only hates the concept, the practice of divorce, verse 16, but it also, look carefully, it says, and him. He also hates him, the man, who covers his garment with wrong. So the one who's doing wrong, but is covering it up, God hates him too. Therefore, what? Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So when marriage is breached by adultery and it's breached by divorce, illegitimate divorce, marriage is being dishonored. But we're told, we're commanded in Hebrews 13, that it should be held in honor. Further, it says, among all. Further, it says, marriage should be held in honor among all. Now, when he says among all, he certainly and at least means among all in the church, among all of the Christians, among all of the brotherhood, all the brothers and sisters in Christ. We all in the church, the body of Christ, we must do so. This shows that at the very least we must do so in the church, among all of the church. Now, if we're supposed to do so all in the church, this means that this is serious work or serious business that God expects of us to make sure we are on guard about holding marriage in high esteem, both in our words and our actions. Marriage should be esteemed in the church. This rules out the, the possibility that we should denigrate marriage, that we should speak light of it, or we should act in light manners, that is, to permit illegitimate divorce to permit illegitimate marriages and yet this is what's happening in the church and no one is being confronted when this happens what i mean is many people in christianity are saying marriage does not have to be between a man and a woman and many people in christianity are saying that one can divorce for whatever reason many people are saying things like that and many people are also justifying and legitimizing fornication and adultery, or adultery. They are legitimizing within marriage when one of the spouses has sexual relations with someone outside of the marriage, then that is adultery. And they are legitimizing that and saying, well, everybody has their needs and we shouldn't be so uptight about things like that. No, people think that and, and preach that, and even pastors are doing that. This should not happen. It should not happen at all. When he says, let marriage be held in honor among all, he is at least referring to the church. And we who claim to be Christians must have a correct interpretation and correct practice in our local churches. Furthermore, though, I think that when he says among all, he may also be including even in society, that is, between church and society, and within society itself. I think he is including that. He very well may be including that. And why do I say so? Because we have examples in the Bible of those who are outside the church or those who are in the church and outside the church, and adultery or a dishonoring of marriage is occurring in those situations. 
For example, for example, remember that in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham um, and, and Sarah went to the land of the Philistines in Genesis chapter 20. And in the land of the Philistines, the king of the Philistines, he was not among the people of God. And yet the king of the Philistines, he understood that it was not right to take another man's wife to be his wife. He knew that. So he was, in, in whatever civil sense, in whatever societal sense in which he understood it, being an unbeliever, he understood it was not right to have another man's wife or to take a wife of another man to be his wife. He knew it was wrong. Another example of this occurs in the book of Genesis chapter 39. When Joseph, the slave in the house of Potiphar, his master, the wife of Potiphar wanted to be with Joseph, wanted to commit adultery with Joseph. They are Egyptians. They are unbelievers. Joseph is a believer. And Joseph tells the wife, no, we cannot do this. God has not with or your my master has not withheld anything from me in this house except you because you are his wife he says and how could I do this great evil and sin against God well she was trying to do it when the husband wasn't there and when the men of the house were not there because she knew in her conscience that that was wrong and then when she slandered Joseph when she slandered Joseph about that incident, because Joseph resisted, when she slandered Joseph to her husband, when he returned to the house, Potiphar was incensed. He was enraged, and he had Joseph thrown in prison, because he chose to believe his wife rather than Joseph. So Potiphar, an unbeliever, knew adultery is wrong. Marriage should be held in honor. Therefore, if unbelievers are thinking this way, Shouldn't believers think this way? Shouldn't all of us promote the wholesome and honorable institution of marriage in every place, wherever we go, whatever we preach and teach, however and whenever we evangelize people? Marriage should be held in honor among all, both in the church and in society. Further, he says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, for this, he explains, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The marriage bed should be undefiled because whenever husband and wife come together and become one flesh, from the time of their marriage or wedding onward until death do they part, when they become one flesh, then it is defilement or it is impurity, it is dirty, it is filthy if the husband or the wife has sexual relations with someone outside of the marriage or something outside of the marriage. It is defilement. That's the biblical term. It's pollution, it's impurity, it's uncleanness, it's defilement. That's the, those are the biblical terms used to describe how something has been compromised. And what has been compromised? The honorable relationship, the exclusive relationship that husband and wife have with one another. Therefore, he says that the marriage bed should remain undefiled. Undefiled. And why? Because judgment is coming. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We'll speak of judgment in a moment. But before we reach judgment keeping things pure because there is judgment to come, we have to first explain who fornicators and adulterers are. Who are fornicators and who are adulterers? The word fornication or to fornicate, fornicator, these words are not so much used in our culture these days. And even within Christian culture, it's often not used. These words are not used. People have a tendency to soften or to euphemize, that is, to use uh, words that sound better, less biting, less sharp, less harsh, in order to explain sin. People have a tendency to do that. Instead of, for example, calling um, 
abortion, abortion. Abortion is actually more of a medical term than a moral term. But what's actually happening when a baby is put to death, when a baby is put to death, that is infanticide. That is murder. And the way in which they do it, they have to um, take scissors, they have to take uh, chemicals, they have to do things like that to cut up, chop up the baby, to pull it out from within the womb. They have to take medicines or chemicals in order to poison the baby like that. So why don't we call it baby poisoning or baby butchering or child chopping? if we're going to describe what's actually happening to those babies. But when we keep saying the word abortion with a medical, uh, seemingly a sanitary term to describe what's happening, and even people call it simply the termination of a pregnancy, a termination. They don't call the baby a baby, they'll call the baby a fetus, so on and so forth. Just to use this illustration, there is a tendency to get away from the sinful nature of an action to get away from the moral repulsion of an action by using words that should not be used. But we need to recover the reality of the situation and call these things according to the true nature of what those things are, what those sins are, both biblically and whenever the Bible doesn't use those words, use factual, truthful words to describe them. So, in this case, the word fornication is not used, but other words have come up, come up, come around. A relationship, an affair, um, my partner, my mate, uh, my lover. Other words are used instead of fornication or even adultery to substitute using these words. Even the word adultery is uh, a word that is... Um, excluded from many conversations. They use other words to describe these sins. So in the Bible, the Bible uses these words for a reason. God's Holy Spirit gave these words, these terms, to the prophets and the apostles. So if the Holy Spirit did so, then we should not compromise what God calls them, even when they are biting or harsh-sounding cutting words, we need to use those words. So, what is a fornicator in the Bible? What is a fornicator? A fornicator in the Bible is a, a word that's used to describe premarital sex, premarital sex. So when individuals are single and they ha have sexual relations, then it is called fornication. This is one use of the word in the Bible. However, another and more general use of the word is a general word for any sexual immorality. Whatever you might think of, if there is any sexual immorality apart from husband and wife in marriage, then the Bible calls that fornication. And fornication is used some of the time in the Bible translations and some of the times the Bible uses the word immorality or sexual immorality. So fornication, immorality, or sexual immorality, according to the original language in the Greek language, the same one word is translated variously in the New Testament. The Greek word is pornos to describe the individual or porneia to describe the, the action. Fornication is porneia, and a fornicator is pornos. And you might see the resemblance in a word that we use. When we use the word pornography, it comes from this Greek word. The etymology comes from this one Greek word. So in the Bible, fornication is specific according to premarital sex. It includes that, but it's actually more than that. It is a general word to describe all kinds of sexual sin. Now, let me show that it is these two cases. And I'd like to do so from sampling verses from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Please turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. 
It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind, as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. What is the sin? The sin is that a man has his father's wife. The wife is married, his father is married to that woman, and yet this man is having or committing immorality or porneia, fornication. Fornication, it is actually reported that there is fornication among you and fornication of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Look there. The unbelieving pagan idolatrous world, they even have some sense of restraint and don't even do that. But why is it that a Christian, somebody in the church of Corinth, is doing this? This is shameful. So he says, someone has his father's wife. This is our word for fornication or immorality as it's used here. So we, here we see this is used in reference to a specific kind of adultery. A man, a son of a father is having relations with his father's wife. A specific kind of adultery is here called fornication or immorality. And notice um, in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 12, 6.12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality or fornication, porneia. The, the body is not for porneia, fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Fornication. Pornea. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the fornicator, that's the original word. The fornicator sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Clearly here, he's saying that if a man goes with a harlot, a prostitute, if he goes with her, he is committing immorality or fornication, porneia. He's doing this with a harlot. Therefore, he says, do not do so. Don't we realize who we are? We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we ought to glorify God with our bodies. Then, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. This will teach us that it is pre premarital sex is also fornication. 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, fornications, that's our word, but because of fornications, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not belong to... Uh, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Verse one, verses 1 and 2, because of immoralities, fornications, 
Each man should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband. There we have one man, one woman, again, right there. This, this is what biblical marriage is. This is what is honorable. And then husband and wife toward one another, verses 3 to 6, they are to support one another's needs as husband and wife, physical needs. And then verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. That is, Paul was single, remained single, and he wishes that all men would do that. However, he realizes that that's not the pattern, that's not general. Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul the Apostle knows, based on Genesis and throughout Scripture, that the vast majority of men and women will be married, and that is a gift of God for them to be married. It's a gift of God to be married and to supply one another's needs within marriage, but not before marriage, because that would be fornication. Next, what is adultery? What is adultery? As I've said before, adultery is, in the Scripture, when a man or a woman who is married, a husband or a wife, when husband or wife has sexual relations with one outside of marriage, outside of his own wife, when a man does that, then it is adultery. It's adultery, clearly so. Now, we know of the common examples, as I mentioned in Genesis 39. Joseph, in fact, he was aware of this sin, and he averted that sin by running away from the wife of Potiphar. But in David's case, David knew it was wrong, and Bathsheba knew it was wrong. That's why they did it the way they did, and suffered the consequences for it. Second Samuel 11 and 12, in that passage, they both knew it was wrong, and yet it happened, and they were punished for it. David and Bathsheba suffered the loss of their son because of the adultery, and also David lost three more sons later in his life. He lost Amnon, he lost Absalom, and he lost Adonijah. He lost those three sons too, and there was turmoil in his household because of the conflicts that these sons brought in their house. And David lost the, the privilege and honor of his ten concubines because Absalom went into the ten concubines when he should not have done so. And David did not have relations with them for the rest of their life. So God did punish him and showed him very clearly that those are wrong. These are just two examples of how the Bible describes adultery as a sin, an egregious sin that must be avoided. Romans chapter 7, if you'd like to turn. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Here is established or explained the principle that we have from earlier in the Bible. But Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Here is the basic principle, the foundation that's laid in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, carried through uh, throughout Scripture, and here explained in summary form right here. A woman is, married woman is bound to her husband by law while the husband is alive. And once he dies, she's free to marry another man. But if her husband is still alive and she joins herself to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. An adulteress. There clearly explain how adultery is a sin 
and it has to do with those who are married and having relations outside of marriage. Now, remember earlier I said that many of us, though we have not committed actual uh, premarital sex or fornication in some other way, in some other bizarre way, as I illustrated earlier, or we have not committed actual adultery in marriage, that many of us in thought and in word have done so. Many of us in thought and in word have done so. We have committed this kind of sin, adultery, or fornication. Matthew chapter 5. Please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 27. 527. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Clearly, Jesus says, he announces or cites the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, taken from the Ten Commandments, from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, 2014. And then he says that that commandment did not have to do only or exclusively with actual physical adultery. But it had to do with more than that because there's an implication that before you commit the physical adultery, you have to be thinking about it. Your eyes have to be fixed on the woman in order to do so with the woman. So isn't it a sin in the inside before you commit the sin on the outside? And the answer is yes. Verse 28 But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. To lust. A lust, in this case, is a strong evil desire for her, for this other woman. Then if you do so, you have committed adultery already in your heart, inside you, your inner being, your inner man, your mind, your heart. You have done so. Here, then, this sin, this sin we have all done. We have all committed. And therefore, we need forgiveness of this sin. So when he says fornication and fornicators and adulterers God will judge, we ought to be confessing our sins and making sure we are ready, ready for that day of judgment, which is finally what he says. Why does he say, let the marriage bed be undefiled? For, or because, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. Remember, the God of this letter to the Hebrews and the God of the Bible is not a Santa Claus. He's not a candy man. He's not a grandfather or a great-grandfather with a pocket full of candy dishing out to his little grandchildren. That is not the way the God of the Bible is. Hebrews 12:29 says for our God is a consuming fire. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 3 to 10 describe Christ coming in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who will not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ even in our verse in Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 to 30 told us to take extreme drastic measures with our eyes and hands in order to prevent ourselves from sinning in this way. Drastic measures. Now he's illustrating with hyperbole. He doesn't mean literally to cut out your hand and cut off your, your hand, uh, cut off hand or, or your eye, pluck it out. He doesn't mean literally because if you do it with your right eye, then your left eye is going to do it. Right? And then if your left eye and right eye are going to do it and you cut out or pluck out both of them, then it's still going to happen in your thoughts. Right? Because you're going to remember what you saw. It's still going to happen in your thoughts. Then what are you supposed to do? Chop off your head? He's not expecting that. Because ultimately the problem is not our physical body. 
Ultimately, the problem is our inner body, our inner soul, our spirit, what we desire, what we want in our heart. That's what he's saying. He's saying we ought to take drastic measures, drastic maybe in our own estimation and drastic in the estimation of our friends, that we are not going to say, we're not going to tell dirty jokes anymore. Then our friends are going to hate us for that. They're going to say, what are you trying to be? You're trying to be a prude? Are you a Puritan? What are you, a holy roller? Who are you, a Jesus freak? They'll say things like that to mock and malign us. That's what they'll say. If you say, if you decide you're not going to share dirty jokes anymore or look at dirty pictures anymore or, or avoid certain places where women are not dressed the way that they should be dressed. If they're not dressed modestly, and you decide to avoid those places, somebody eventually is going to laugh at you about that. So it's drastic in that sense that you have to do that in order to keep yourself from sinning. You will have a concern to avoid the sin because you know who God is and you know He will judge the sin. Therefore, we should not love it. We should not practice it. We should confess and forsake it. We should take steps to avoid sinning in those ways to the best of our ability, according to the wisdom of the Word of God, according to the wisdom of the, uh, or the uh, facts of the situation, we should do whatever we can to avoid doing that and please God thereby, because God will judge. He will judge. Notice in Matthew 5, he says, it's better to do this than to be thrown into hell. He says in 29, be thrown into hell. 30, whole body, go into hell. Hell is the consequence. Hell is the consequence of disobedience to these commandments. Let's look also, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the same thing as saying you're going to hell. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And what kind of people? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says it twice, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he mentions some of the common sins, but he's not listing every sin. He's just listing some of the common sins. These kinds of people will not go to heaven because they practice them. Notice, they practice them. And in verse 11 it's not as though they don't repent of them. They do repent, and some of them repent. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Those who do those sins or practice those sins shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Another place is Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Twenty-one, verse 8. Revelation 21, 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, immoral is fornicators. Fornicators. And he's speaking generally because he does not mention adultery specifically. So he must be speaking generally when he says immoral persons. He means premarital sex, he means rape, he means prostitution, he means whatever other kinds of sexual sins. He's including all of them, fornicators, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 22, Revelation 22, 15. Those, well actually we'll start in 22, 14, 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, 
and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, that's fornicators, and the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. The practitioners of these sins are outside of the heavenly city. Those are going to be thrown all into the lake of fire. Therefore, when it says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, we must understand that that is serious language. It's serious, and our friends and family cannot take this lightly. They cannot take it lightly, and we cannot take it lightly when we address this with the people that we encounter, especially with the people we love. Now, as was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6.11, is forgiveness possible? Yes, and amen. Forgiveness is possible based on repentance and faith. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. When one repents and turns, then there is forgiveness that is possible. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, Matthew 1, uh, Mark 1, 15. Mark 1, 15. And back to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you. Some of the Corinthians practiced those sins, but they confessed, they repented, they believed in the gospel. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. May this be true of all of us and all of the people we encounter, that when we preach the gospel to them, that they in fact do repent of their sins and put their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, our Lord and Savior. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.